I'm sitting in the doorway at the hut at Namoy Point, looking out over the bay. A bit of grease ice forming up. Got some penguins down under the hut, starting their nests for the season. Second day of 2019 operations for me. Pretty damn pleased to be here. But I've got a script to read. Where are we? Birds returned to Little America coincided with the clearance of the West Barrier Cache, all stores lying in the East Barrier Cache or already Little America. After many crevasse falls, much mechanical repair and jury rigging, or all-out moving of the crevasse bridge, earning the structure the name the Bridge of Size, and just hard-out slogging, the Little Americans felt so exhausted by the struggle to get the expedition ashore that few had the energy to banter. The news of a day off on the 6th of February saw tools down, but this first period of inactivity and stillness meant everyone felt the rhythmic movement for the first time. The barrier rose and fell at the frequency of an ocean swell. That explained the pressure, the shifting crevasse walls that necessitated the regular repair and replacement of the bridge, and the large arcing patterns of crevasses surrounding the area Little America occupied, either newly arisen or blocked from view during the previous occupation. Discovery of these cracks led Bird to establish a bailout depot on the nearest high ground, a mile southeast of the base. Retreat camp held enough basics to keep the winter contingent alive and out of the weather, should Little America show signs of heading out to sea. Lieutenant English sailed out of the Bay of Wales on the 18th of February, meeting grease ice and some pancake ice on the way to its rendezvous with the Discovery 2, marking the onset of the annual sea ice surface freeze and presaging a Belgica-level problem if the ship didn't make good time delivering the new Doctor and showing Antarctica a clean pair of heels. Fortunately, radio direction finding equipment allowed the two vessels to find each other in the shortest possible time. Dr Pataka and a quantity of last-minute cargo transferred as quickly as the oceanic swell allowed, and the bear turned south once more at noon on the 27th of February. Gales kept progress slow, and ice formed on the rigging. Twenty miles north of the Bay of Wales, the bear came to a halt in the face of dense and rapidly cementing pack ice. Bird and McCormick flew out over the sea ice to confirm Paul Seifel's sighting of open leads and advised Lieutenant English that if he could break his stalemate with the ice, the bear might yet reach its destination, though whether it could retreat north once more, taking with it those hands working hard to establish Little America but not slated to stay on there through the winter, was another matter. Bird quickly formulated a contingency plan to counter the most pressing need involving landing the doctor in an embayment 90 miles west that he thought likely remained ice-free and dispatching a dog team to collect him, but it proved unnecessary as Lieutenant English battered a path through the ice and Dr Pataka stepped ashore as close to Little America as maritime transport might land him on the 26th of February. Bird once more faced the task of selecting who stayed on for the winter, the easy part, and passing on the bad news to those who must leave aboard the bear, the hard part. Once more, many of the people sent north took the news badly, one going so far as to seek revenge, attempting an act of sabotage, though no account defines exactly what he tried to do. Sent north for regular drunkenness, the soak held to drunken form, getting caught and reprimanded while trying to perpetrate his vengeance and departing in a sullen and defeated funk. Twelve men, including the sullen soak, rode a tractor-hauled sledge to the water's edge and Lieutenant English didn't dally in starting his attempt to get clear of Antarctica before becoming part of it. Fifty-six men stayed on at Little America for the 1934 Austral winter, the largest party to face the southern long dark to date. The bear experienced a rough trot north breaking free of the pack ice only to find the Southern Ocean in a near-constant state of gale-mediated upheaval, the ship rolling as much as 50 degrees either side of vertical in the large swells. A relieved Lieutenant English sailed his charge up Otago Harbour to Dunedin on the 12th of March. Almost as soon as the bear departed, Poulter ordered two fellow teetotalers to bring him June's illicit cases of booze from the cache in the abandoned hut. Once in possession of the contraband, 
Poulter worked alone to hide it, ensuring no one could blab and kick off a repeat of the previous occupation's drunken problems. Poulter chose one of the old, disused tunnels as the hiding place. Using a point it intersected with one of the newly dug tunnels as the entry to avoid being seen going about his secretive deed by those still at work on the surface. With the alcohol cased in the old tunnel, he used fresh cut snow blocks to cover the access hole and then shaved the surface flush with the existing walls, well happy with the almost invisible result. With June's supply out of reach, Poulter then turned his attention to the remainder of the alcohol in the medical supplies burying it near the magnetic hut in the small hours of the morning and relying on the nightly drift snow to cover and hide his handiwork. With the large volumes of alcohol brought south by Shirley out of the picture, Poulter hoped that personal supplies would quickly be exhausted. When June returned to Little America and discovered his case missing, he radioed Bird to piss and moan. Instead of reminding June that Little America was, by his own order, operating dry that year, Bird responded that such matters were Poulter's remit, a coward's dodge if ever I saw one. On the 1st of March, the first sledging party set out, working toward a goal other than slogging gear to Little America. Innes Taylor led a five-sledge, two-camera operator operation, aiming to depot supplies every 25 miles south to the 200-mile mark. with two sledges carting support materials and three intenders making the full journey. With the days quickly growing shorter and the sledging conditions growing increasingly problematic, this autumnal gambit posed a bigger risk than a springtime equivalent, with dog teams daily at greater risk of stranding at an increasingly remote site. In the spring, the conditions progressively improve with time, and the best analogue I can think of that might resonate with a large number of listeners is that I always head upstream when taking to a river for a jaunty jaunt in a canoe or kayak. You want conditions on your side when you make the return leg, likely tired and sunburnt and ready to get ashore once more. Where Scott, Shackleton and Amundsen saw southern depots during their first summer as essential to the success of sledging efforts in the subsequent summer, immediately establishing depots to the south mattered to Bird because of what he had in mind for the winter months. More foreshadowing. Ooh, getting closer to the reveal. The same pressure ice that made the reoccupation of Little America so problematic also made reaching further south on the Ross Ice Shelf challenging. Blackburn led a scouting dog team while McCormick and Bird flew reconnaissance in the autogyro, seeking the simplest, safest path south. Blackburn and Dane on the ground found the desired path and flagged it for Inner's Taylor. The camera operators, Herman and Peterson, returned to base on foot after generating the requisite heroic imagery during the first day of sledging. Meanwhile, June and Damas oversaw the overhaul of the half-tracks and the tractor. The Citroens clocked up 6,000 miles and the Kleetrak 1,000 miles, moving the cargo about the local ice, and Bird expected far more from them in the year to follow so they all received a lot of attention to keep them in tip-top form. On the 3rd of March, Dyer fell from the top of one of the radio masts, surviving with nought but a barked shin when the 45-foot drop ended in a deep snowdrift. Where the fall didn't kill him, the brace and bit that followed him down very nearly did, embedding itself bit first and deep into the fern near his head. According to Bailey, the radio man got up, shook himself off and muttered, damn fool thing to do, which was correct as well as magnificently understated. I know I said a lot more, or at least croaked it out with what air my winded lungs could provide, after a shorter fall onto a harder surface. Shocks akin to seismic activity shook Little America periodically, and Dr Poulter determined crack formation and movement in the 500 foot thick ice shelf beneath the base as the cause. Poulter established some homemade tilt meters modified Macomb-Romberg seismographs to measure changes in the ice over time and set these instruments to measure the rate of change on surface cracks near Little America. These returned worrying results, leading Bird to present all hands with the fact of the matter and seeking to work out a practical plan from their contributions. A very different style of leadership to anything seen before in Antarctica and likely an extremely unsettling one for anyone accustomed to life aboard ships or in military ranks.
I've seen this sort of nonsense at a small scale, wherein a field leader doesn't want to cop blame for any possible outcome, when a distasteful situation requires resolving by a selection from a range of distasteful options, and I hold little respect for it. Committees are great for canvassing broadly of community expertise, but they don't get shit done quickly or effectively when time is a critical factor and safety lies at risk. The result of the all-hands meeting was an increase in traffic dragging cargo to retreat camp to buttress the food and materials already in place there, but to otherwise maintain at Little America and hope that the sea surface freeze came on quickly enough to dampen the effects of oceanic swell on the barrier. Poulter watched his instruments, hoping fine-scale patterns would presage any large-scale catastrophe. After four days with no word from the Southern Party, Bird dispatched June, Waite and Skinner aboard a Citroen to check it was just a radio fault upsetting the regular radio schedule. While making many aspects of Antarctic operations safer and easier to amend on the fly, radio also presented the problem that silence could mean an emergency. Where previously a sledging party disappeared into the landscape for months at a time and no one started worrying about them until they were months overdue, Radios and the associated schedules people established to check in on each other saw concerns arise more quickly when no word came in. Until radio sets went solid state and became physically rugged, the electronic valve stood as one of the most innocuously dangerous articles in Antarctica. It could save lives by transmitting word to those who needed to hear it and getting emergency procedures underway, but its failure could also set in motion unnecessary search and rescue operations, increasing the numbers of people in the elements and decreasing personnel redundancies on base. June's Citroen followed the mile marker flags and caught up the sledges at the 50 mile depot, where Waite repaired the faulty radio set that caused the sudden silence, and the dog teams received 14 parcels, each containing an additional 30 days of man food, gratefully. Clark went on the sick list, with a recurrence of malaria, and Noville experienced a lame shoulder, a metal plate in place in the joint since the crash of the America in Bird's preparations for the transatlantic flight, reacting poorly to the cold. Rawson experienced some sort of infection in his throat that gave Dr Pataka sufficient concern that he began preparing a surgery to perform surgery in. The 20-minute operation, another Antarctic first for Bird, took place smoothly but for the intrusion of a pack of dogs that got loose and tore around the nominally sterile space until caught and bundled back out, which was probably another first in itself. June's Citroen arrived back at Little America after a record-setting 120 miles covered in a day, the effort receiving a boost in their having saved a lot of time by catching hot food from the dog teams spread out along the trail in the various stages of sledge-mediated depoting. Skinner remarked, just get enough dog parties strung out in front of you and you can enjoy one free lunch after another. Dog driving still had a lot of miles left in it in Antarctica, but after many false and one encouraging start, motorised sledging finally showed some sign of fulfilling the Antarctic promise people sought to see in it, sometimes over-enthusiastically, for the past 20 years. Dog drivers and tractor teams argued the advantages of their mode back and forth throughout the expedition, and there's merit in the arguments of both sides. But the dogs had company on the trail that would, half a century and change on, outlast their presence in Antarctica. The Citrons didn't enjoy all plain tractoring though, experiencing many close shaves with crevasses. June wrote, It's a funny experience, the same sickening sag you get when the plane hit an air pocket. You're driving along, thinking everything's all right, then all of a sudden there's a brump that a loud vroom as tons of snow slide down a cliff and you feel her tipping and sliding backward as the treads grab for traction. If you have speed and reserve, you're all right. They weren't always all right though, and drivers became practised at leaping clear of the cabin when they saw no other option, and many times the Citroens needed towing out of crevasses or filling in of the crevasse sufficient to allow the tracks to gain traction enough to push the machine up a ramp dug down to meet its wedged in front. June's report on the push south expressed his confidence the Citroens could work effectively and safely on the barrier, but also noted doubts the Klee track, twice as heavy as the French machines, could join them. 
with Bird unwilling to risk using the Condor that late in the season for fear of damaging it and nulling its exploratory potential the following summer, and also unwilling to contemplate digging up and setting to task the Ford Trimotor, though I don't know if that was because of a contract with Curtis that precluded using a competing manufacturer's aircraft in such core expedition work, or because Bird had an eye on getting the iconic machine back to the USA for display and thereby enhancing the Bird brand. The pulling power of the Cleetrack was central to Bird's plans for advanced base, so he ignored June's qualms about it and set the machine to work, getting a prefabricated meteorological station out on the barrier. On the 13th of March, three months later in the season than when Bird called a halt to all aviation in his previous expedition, Schlossbach prepared the Fokker for its first ferry flight south. A Van Prague heater operating in the canvas engine cover, custom sewn by the sailmaker, Linwood Miller, brought the engine block up to temperature, and a frying pan of oil for the crankcase simmered on a stove indoors until moments before Schlossbach got the propeller turning. Having helped dig the Fokker out of its snowy covering several times before Haynes nixed the flight, Zoon, Young and Dustin received an invitation aboard for a test hop, the first time any of the three young men flew in an aircraft. The takeoff run across the Sestrugi saw the Fokker bounced into the air before attaining sufficient flying speed, and it came down hard, the wing smashed and the ski gear torn away. Everyone aboard survived without injury, but the loss forced Bird's hand, and he mandated the Condor make good on the cargo previously slated to arrive at the 100-mile depot via the Fokker, though the weather never improved enough to action this change of heart. Bird also put the Fairchild Pilgrim to task, carrying materials out to the 100-mile mark with the idea that the Citroens would carry past there and begin establishing Bolling Advance base. Ooh, more foreshadowing. Aerial photographer Pelter developed appendicitis and required surgery, an operation made difficult by the bulk of the surgical instruments having burnt when the doctor knocked over a lantern and set fire to the cache of medical equipment. The resulting conflagration came close to trapping several men in the accommodations block with no way out, so improvising surgical equipment was a lesser price than the expedition could have paid for the doctor's carelessness with the flammables. So, what's all this you're hearing about advanced base? In formulating his plans for a second Antarctic expedition, Bird cast about for exciting projects that would capture and hold public attention. Discussed since 1930, Bird's advanced base proposed establishing a meteorological station on the Polar Plateau and staffing it with three expedition members, giving the expedition the furthest south winter experience to date, and meteorological data unique to Bird's efforts. Strager designed a suitable hut and Tingloff prefabricated the pieces before the expedition departed. Once at Little America, preparing advance base, Bird announced he would occupy the meteorological outpost alone. He couched this decision in terms of not having the hauling power to drag enough stores south to sustain a party of three for the entire winter, and concerned for the well-being of others, the leader taking all the risk for himself. He wrote up orders that no one should attempt a rescue should anything go wrong, the winter trek south posing too great a danger to contemplate, which was all bunk. The reason Norman Vaughan returned to advertising after sourcing the expedition dogs was Bird's having revealed his intention to stay at advanced base on his own. Vaughan wasn't so much disappointed he wouldn't get to spend months in a tiny box with Bird, as he was disappointed to see the glory-seeking side of his mentor so much on show in his making this revelation. He knew Bird well enough not to feel overly surprised by this particular publicity gambit, but he saw too much of the gold leaf fall away from a previously admired leader. Bird wrote of his ambition to examine the human condition in complete isolation while gathering vital scientific data, and to write of the experience as he lived it. All noble sentiments, and high-grade hype, if you're into the PR side of things, but a bum deal if you followed someone to the end of the earth on no pay, only to see him drop his leadership responsibilities to spend five months navel-gazing. Even worse for those Bird left at Little America, the leadership framework left in his place was as rubbish in practice as it appeared on the paper of the orders Bird cut. Poulter, Bird's reluctant 2IC, would oversee Little America through the winter with Haynes as third in command. Harold June, 
bitterly resentful Bird overlooked him for the position given to Poulter. Bird nominated as Chief of Staff by way of a peace offering. Bird made George Neville Executive Officer. I'm not sure that establishes a clear hierarchy, even in military terms, but even worse than this vagueness, Bird established protocols such that Poulter's orders could be overruled by a two-thirds vote of a committee comprising 17 heads of departments and Little America veterans. Split leadership at high latitudes. Dun-dun-dun! Split leadership at high latitudes, wherein one of the people in the split resents the hell out of another and openly expresses his anger about being overlooked for the role he thought he deserved. Double dun-dun-dun! Of all the dumbass stuff I've castigated Bird's ghost for, bowling advance base is the dumbest. And Bird's time in the meteorological outpost and the problematic leadership at Little America played out about as well as anyone following this series from episode one might expect. The Citrons and the Kleetrak departed Little America on the 16th of March, towing Jager's prefabricated hut, vittles, instruments and a small library of wholesome reading materials south. The motor transport crew rigged the cab doors of the Citrons such that a quick pull on a lanyard dropped the cab doors off their hinges, leaving a driver a clear path to freedom should the machine start disappearing into a crevasse. But the heavier Kleetrak, more likely to take such a plunge, received remote control apparatus in the form of reins on the control levers. Approaching a known crevasse, the driver could disembark and control the machine across the danger zone before following on foot. I like to think the arrangement carried a failsafe in that the weight of a driver hanging from the reins in a crevasse could automatically lead to their extrication as the tension pulled the levers into the go-forward position, but I can't find a diagram of how they arranged the system. Thirteen sledges of equipment and stores went with them in an epic and epically stupid exercise, but departing so late in the year, the destination kept shifting closer. Bird originally envisioned advanced base on the Polar Plateau, but that goal already shifted to the Queenward Range, 400 miles south of Little America, shortly after the Rippet arrived in the Bay of Wales. With the winter dark looming and the associated decreasing temperatures placing new and previously unmapped taxes on the machinery, comprising the advanced base caravan, the goalpost moved again. Damas and June should establish the hut as far south as they felt confident they could safely return from, which turned out to be 123 miles from Little America as the skewer flies, when the Kleetrak broke down and refused to start again, in spite of hours of attention with the blowtorches on the engine block and crankcase. Damas determined the problem stemming from the magneto, and the Kleetrak could run again, but he lacked the parts to fix it on the spot. The mechanised team covered far more miles than the straight line 123 to reach that point, with many backtrackings out of crevasse mazes and Citroen crews losing the flags and veering off course. The penultimate flights of that season saw the Fairchild overfly the Traverse team to offer airborne insight into crevasse conditions ahead. Watch you, Dave. Thanks for waiting. Not a problem. Are you here all day? Yeah. Oh, okay. Good times? Yeah, good times. Hey, Bird. Bird's press release regarding his solo sojourn included an instruction that no one should feel concerned if the radio went out. Quote, I am not a radio operator, and the radio will probably fail. There should be no cause for concern. If only the radio had failed. He dispatched letters to his friends and family, and promised his children that he wouldn't leave them again after his lonely winter. Marie Bird reacted with horror to the news coming north in Murphy's broadcasts, and Admiral Bird attempted to assuage her concern, telling her he planned the whole exercise long ago and this was no spur-of-the-moment decision. With advanced base just a hundred short miles away, he could be easily reached even in the depths of winter, he tried to reassure her, countering a lot of what he'd already stated to his wintering party, and ignoring that the location was more a matter of mechanical necessity than the long-laid plans. Liar, liar, pants on a converted coal stove, but still unable to catch fire because of the deep cold of the barrier at midwinter. Financial backers also expressed concern. If Bird died, there was no way to recoup their costs. He was the talent they banked on turning a profit from when he returned to the USA. 
A noble death pursuing science for the betterment of all mankind might give his legacy some mileage, but it wouldn't put bums on seats or sell boxes of grape nuts or boost the circulation of National Geographic magazine or the New York Times. On the 22nd of March, Bird got himself flown to the site of Advanced Base in the Fairchild Pilgrim to oversee Tingaloff and Seipel breaking ground for the hut. They dug a pit into which Schager's hut would fit. Almost. Schager's design relied on the roofline lying flush with the snow surface to preclude snow drifting up to Leward, but the pit wasn't deep enough. The finished roofline stood clear of the surface, not by much, but enough to cause problems down the line. Short on time, the construction team carried forward, fitting out advanced base with its bunk, shelves, instruments, radio, generator, storage tunnels, latrine, a hole in the snow in one of the tunnels, and a cooking and heating stove, a unit designed to burn coal and refitted to receive kerosene, coal being deemed too bulky to carry in on the sledges. The rush to get the hut in place led to a poor fit in the prefabricated components. Fine drift snow entered under the influence of strong winds, and deep snow drifts accumulated to leeward of the roofline, sitting proud of the snow surface. Snowy sheath spill, transiting to where the penguins are nesting. And eating poop, as is their want. Dog teams returning to Little America late in the season demonstrated the impact of birds' folly. On the 27th of March, a Labrador Husky in Finn Ronnie's team died in the harness, the dead doggo cut from the traces and left behind. Another dog fell in Innes Taylor's team, receiving a bullet once the revolver warmed up enough in the captain's glove that firing it wouldn't shatter the breech. That same day, Payne's team also lost a dog to exhaustion and a bullet. And all this for a 13-mile gain. With 75 miles to go, the Tauntauns showing similar signs of flagging out and still no sign of Skywalker, Innes Taylor began to doubt they would make it back to Little America under dog power. The mechanised party departed north on the 28th of March, with the dog teams hot on their heels, as much as that temperature-based phrase pertains to the start of the long dark on the Ross ice shelf, and Bird began his long, dumb, dark isolation. After topping off the Citroen fuel tanks at retreat camp, the dogs, far smarter than Admiral Bird, refused duty and rode home on the sledges behind the half-tracks. Anxious after their ordeal in the Antarctic twilight, the restless animals did like a locksmith and made a bolt for the door any time anyone entered a building, trying as much as possible to enjoy some indoor time and warmth and to distance themselves from the increasingly dangerous landscape the daft monkeys just drove them across. Stuart Payne's diary scathed about many of his companions, but Admiral Byrd came in for special consideration, and Payne's entries about his leader sum up the opinions of many other little Americans. Quote, he isn't a practical man and hasn't the faintest idea of how to use his hands. He cooked jello the other night and it was the first bit of cooking he has ever done. The radio he doesn't know a thing about, not even the code. End quote. Summing up Payne's assessment of Bird's capacity to fend for himself. Regarding his feelings about Bird as a leader, he wrote, As far as I can see, our whole trip was futile and in vain. We are merely tools for the Admiral's ambitions. To struggle and work for something worthwhile is one thing. To do that for nothing is all too disheartening. End quote. Some notes on small party dynamics in remote areas. Bird originally envisioned a three-person team at advanced base and maps out the same reasons lots of people give for taking three people into remote areas. Lighthouses, polar forays, kayak trips around Svalbard, three keeps coming up as the magic number people agree on as ideal. I like three well enough. As serviceable a number as any other integer, and it works a charm for lists of things when speaking in public. But I've read enough accounts of three-person expeditions that went catastrophically wrong because three people took part, that I don't trust it for small group dynamics. Two people might not see eye to eye, but there's no third person for either of them to form a clique with. If clicking happens, things tend to go rapidly downhill from there. 
Lester and Bagshaw offer an excellent example of two people of different temperaments getting along well enough, where I think a third person would have seen Waterboat Point bear witness to Antarctica's first murder. That sounds hyperbolic, but given the number of three-person treks that have gone south while going south, without needing to experience the privation-driven toastiness of an Antarctic winter, I think I'm on the money there. Two people might hate each other's guts, but absent any other person, they can't play power games against each other. Three will almost inevitably see someone on the outer to the point whatever trait saw them ostracised exacerbates until they lose it from ever-increasing loneliness. Three can't save themselves from the polar plateau if one of them gets injured any better than two can. Either two walk out without the injured member, or everyone dies together. So three people seems like a bad idea for anything other than a hand of mahjong, to me. Though I'm hoping to speak to a couple of very adventurous people about their opinions on the matter of three at high latitudes. On April Fool's Day, with most of the trail parties returned, Poulter sanctioned George Noville's idea of serving spiked punch at dinner, and regretted it almost immediately, with many base residents unable to function the following day, and Sterrett almost dying of hypothermia when he collapsed in a drunken stupor and a snowdrift topside. A happenstance encounter seeing him brought indoors and not becoming the first death under Richard Bird's aegis. Poulter received repeated requests from Marie Bird, Bird's sponsors and donors, and former Little America resident Ashley McKinley, that he should radio the Admiral and implore he return to Little America before the winter fully set in. Besides figuring this would add long hours of slow responses to the radio operator's already full schedule, Poulter didn't think the Admiral would heed the entreaties, heartfelt as they were, and that to send a recall party would needlessly put at risk the people involved. The messages went unsent. Bird acknowledges in his account of his experiences in the Antarctic interior, alone, that bowling advanced weather base was at least as much about the personal test of his mental and physical metal as it was about the meteorology and auroral observations. He wrote that with 14 years of constant expedition administration and preparation, he wanted some alone time, which you'd think he could get more readily and less dangerously by not going on expeditions for a bit. But he was Richard Evelyn Bird, so that doesn't appear to have occurred to him. Bird's extensive soliloquy on the necessity of bowling advanced weather base runs on for 21 pages and never gets much past my suspicion that he needed an excuse to do something to make this expedition extraordinary, as nothing else arose that equalled the singular novelty of his past projects featured in this series. He nearly died twice when topside in the winter darkness, once when the hatch wouldn't open, and once when he wandered too far from the entrance and lost his bearings. But the greatest danger bowling advanced base posed to Bird was carbon monoxide. Some authors blame the poorly sealed and badly ventilated generator ventilator specifically, and others point to the converted kerosene stove. But whether or not a single error of construction and fitting out lay at the heart of the problem, the sum total fossil fuel consumption from stove, generator and kerosene lanterns slowly poisoned the man their heat, light and electricity helped keep alive in the short term. Carbon monoxide arises when you burn stuff in the presence of insufficient oxygen to ensure complete combustion, or at a temperature that prevents effective vaporisation of the fuel. Partial oxidation of carbon-based fuel results in chemically active carbon monoxide, where complete combustion leaves behind the almost chemically inert carbon dioxide. The latter is bad for you in that it acidifies the blood and tells your hypothalamus to kick your breathing up a notch. The same partial pressure of the more chemically active carbon monoxide can be fatal because it binds to haemoglobin and doesn't readily let go, excluding oxygen from the binding site and thereby causing oxygen depletion in the cells of the body. It doesn't take a lot of carbon monoxide to completely null the advantages haemoglobin offers our circulatory system and the resulting hypoxia quickly leads to unconsciousness and death. Low concentrations at sea level lead to lethargy and nausea, but unless the source of carbon monoxide is identified and stopped, the situation gets steadily worse, ending in unconsciousness followed by death. Signs of exposure include bright cherry red lips, but that's not much help, as it's only in late stage poisoning that this shows up. Unless you have access to a hyperbaric unit with a huge stash of oxygen and a supplementary oxygen separator, 
The patient is, by that point, pretty much fucked, and Bird didn't even have anyone on hand to check his lips. Writing of his symptoms in Alone, Bird recounts, Faintness seized me as I touched a foot to the floor. I barely made the chair. There I sat for some minutes, not moving, just staring at the candle. Then I turned the valve and with the stove lids off, waited for the wick to become saturated with the cold, sluggish oil. Thirst continued to plague me. Several inches of ice were in the water bucket. I dropped it on the floor, bottom up, and a sliver of ice fell out, which I sucked until my teeth rattled from the cold. A box of matches was on the table. I touched one to the burner. A red flame licked over the metal ring. It was a beautiful thing to see. I sat there for 10 or 15 minutes at least, absorbing the column of warmth. The flame burned red and smoky when it should have been blue and clear. And, studying it, I knew that this was from faulty combustion and was one source of my misfortunes. This fire was my enemy, but I could not live without it. I read this as making the best possible literature from limited drama. A really good writer could find a compelling narrative in the tense, almost motionless battle between the small flame and the man it both heated and poisoned. But Bird wasn't a good writer, even when assisted by ghost authors, and the text is largely turgid and seems to be considered a classic of polar literature by people who either haven't read it or who haven't read enough good literature to show up the contrast. If you grew up on a steady diet of Reader's Digest magazines and little else, it probably reads well and comprises some exciting shit, but anyone with broader literary horizons will recognise it as only being shit. To date, Lyle Rose is the only author whose recounting of events at Bolling Advance Base addresses that Bird should have known Morse code as a basic skill available to any naval officer. That Bird spent more time at the Morse key than a more competent sender and receiver might need may in part, account for the monoxide poisoning. Running the generator for an hour to send and receive what might only require half an hour in a more competent radio operator represents a significant shift in the partial pressures of poisonous gases in an almost hermetically sealed hermitage. No one among Bird's rescue party, who lived in the hut and who took over radio duties, experienced any ill effects in the two months they spent nursing Bird back to sufficient health to endure the return trip. But this may be due to Poulter, a very mechanically minded and handy scientist, spotting and fixing the poor seal and venting for the generator shortly after arriving. Bird published alone in 1938, claiming the multi-year delay in putting pen to paper arising from both the time it took him to recover from the experiences the narrative recounts and because of his reticence to write about his own suffering. <coughs> Figuring reliving the events would prove harrowing and the resulting text distastefully subjective. Reading it in light of what I know about Bird's character and the concern he felt for his own legacy, I can understand his plight. It reads as a harrowing account of an idiot setting out to achieve maximum idiotic harrowment and kicking a big goal on that front. Dumbass literature. Eat, pray, met report. I've skipped over a lot of the details some authors give considerable coverage to, because most of that detail arises from Alone, which I find mind-numbing reading. If you want to know what Bird alleges went through his alleged mind for the months he spent in the cold and the dark in his own, of his own volition, you can find a copy for sale in John King Books for seven bucks. While Bird was being stoic and poisoned further south, Poulter experienced leadership difficulties at Little America. June, already pissed off at Poulter for getting the two IC slot he figured Bird owed him, redoubled his bitterness at Poulter's hiding his booze cache and began manoeuvring to gain power by which to undercut Poulter's authority. Poulter tried to counter June's currying favour about the base by establishing new tiers among the officers, designating Perkins and Bolin assistant executive officers under Noville. On the 9th of April, June played his first outright flouting of Poulter's authority ordering Tingleoff to work on a sledge instead of helping Poulter, then getting drunk with the carpenter to the point Tingleoff couldn't work the following day. A less important but no less fervent mirror to the friction between Poulter and June arose in boastful competition between the dog-driving and the citron-driving teams. 
the former disdainfully written off as dog catchers, and the latter labelled limousine explorers by their counterparts. Long and loud discussions praising the merits of and highlighting the shortcomings of each transport mode filled the mess each mealtime. For the most part, it was light-hearted ribbing, but, as with such ribbing between nations or cities, there were some passionate opinions at the heart of many pundits' contributions. Dog drivers, as you've heard in interview in this series, love working with dogs in Antarctica and reminisce about their time among the canines as the good old days, even when the days in question passed as much as 60 years after effective motorised transport made it to the ice. Tractor drivers can't help but see the advantages of their horsepower and heated cabins as the superior option. That both sides were, in part, correct, because both modes offer advantages, doesn't alter that both sides proffered their take on the matter as the one true truth, ignoring the shortcomings of their own mode to damn the other mode for its faults. A pattern anyone who spent any time perusing the internet will readily recognise. Murphy, who picked up the story of Little America in Discovery, while Bird slowly poisoned himself at Bolling Advance Base, recounted Captain Innes Taylor's response to the passage of a motorised caravan. Quote, you have my word for it, gentlemen. Those bloated daredevils were lolling on cushioned seats, chewing gum and eating chocolate like so many millionaires on a tour. Stop? Hell, those fellows went by with their noses stuck up in the air as if they were passing a family of peasants having a humble dinner in a miserable hovel. End of quote. The dog drivers didn't see the other side of the existence of their perceived mechanical usurpers with mechanics first scalding themselves with radiator contents, which then burnt them a second time with frostbites, while they worked to blow condensation out of the fuel lines for the 50th time in a 24-hour span. In addition to melting water for food and beverages, the primer stoves had to work almost constantly to keep the radiators topped up in the face of constant leaks, and the fragility of manufactured engine belting saw almost everything that could make a flexible loop pressed into service to keep water pumps and fans turning. The heated cabin, Innes Taylor cited, was a matter of the co-pilot holding a Primus lamp in a bucket between their thighs. Things are different now, with reliable diesel equipment featuring climate-controlled cabins with stereo systems arriving pre-adapted to extreme cold conditions. The pioneers of successful motorised sledging did it pretty damned hard. Little America remained a work in progress when Bird departed south, with 100 tonnes of stores still lying useless at East Barrier Camp, and 200 seal carcasses lying on the sea ice awaiting collection to keep the dogs fed through the winter. So the slog to fit out and fill up the new and old edifices continued well into April. Those dogs not dying or trying in their traces were kept on the surface until the hypothermic death toll forced the opening of Dogtown a series of yet-to-be-completed tunnels spasmodically under construction whenever the needs of aviation, building and sledging weren't deemed more urgent. This ended the exposure deaths, but the dark, cramped, stinking in spite of the cold tunnels remained a difficult place for any dog lover to love, and deaths still occurred due to dogs pulling their stake and playing out vengeance for some canine slight enacted against them in the past though loose dogs also led to pregnancies and litters that helped bolster the numbers for the spring sledging carnival. Men began probing the snow with sounding rods, hoping to find the hidden alcohol cache, turning up nothing but the cache of snowed-over mail. On the 17th of April, after the last load of dead seals came in, June took a citron down to the Misery Trail and uprooted the timber poles at the base of the Bridge of Size. The expedition was finally ashore. A stock take on the 24th revealed only 3,000 gallons of citron gasoline remained, barely enough for the proposed spring program. Dogs brought out of Dogtown and set to work on the East Barrier Cache Road brought in the final loads by the 26th. Little America was finally fully equipped for the quiet times brought on by the long dark. How's the serenity? Quiet you. And you. Topside, the aircraft still needed hangering 
and went into winter storage by the dangerous but efficient method of cutting a hole the same shape as the airframe directly beneath them and then removing the snow beneath their skis a bit at a time. Snow blocks removed from beneath the wings and fuselages formed courses of fern blocks around the perimeter of the holes, so the aircraft received protection from the wind without the need to dig out their full depth. No one lost any limbs as the Condor, the Pilgrim and the Autogyro descended into their grave-like homes in a series of short falls, but it must have been luck rather than method that brought about that outcome. Tarpaulins over the holes soon collected small berms of snow that provided a sufficiently streamlined shape that drift didn't collect and crush the aircraft. Again, more a matter of luck than method, I think. The Fokker wreckage, its engine and instruments salvaged, waved a remonstrative broken wing above its deepening covering of drift. My fate awaits you unless you heed the warning of my demise, or some such poetic anthropomorphic guff people invent to invest the inanimate and banal with agency and meaning. On the 28th, Poulter gave Neville some alcohol from the cache in his quarters for spiked punch after dinner. As with officially sanctioned wet parties at the first iteration of Little America, it turned to bedlam. Three drunkards passed out in deadly cold places this time, and Poulter decided to make this the last officially sanctioned wet event, pouring the entire stash of whiskey in his possession into a hole in the ice beneath his meteor observatory, masking the odour with chlorinated lime and wood smoke and burying the bottles in holes dug in the tunnel leading to his hut. The final winterising preparations at Little America ran on until the 19th of May, when the Citroens and snowmobiles finally ran down their ramps into the garages dug for them, lined with the wood of the crates that carried them south. The final digging took a perceived eternity, as the shortening days limited topside activity, and exhausted and dispirited men took to the task of snow shoveling with ever-increasing disdain. As a final topside excitement for the season, Skinner's Citroen caught fire one last time as it disappeared into its winter abode, onlookers dowsing the flames with snow. Sealed away from the blizzards, these garages became the workspace for Damas, Skinner, Von der Waal and Hill, who spent the winter working over their mechanical charges, making permanent repairs to replace the temporary patch-up jobs field conditions necessitated, and inventing gadgets to improve cold conditions performance. Tunnelling recommenced after several men got lost trying to transit topside from the old buildings to the new mess hall during blizzards. Better to spend another day with the snow shovels than die a cold and lonely death, just a few frustratingly impossible to map metres from safety. This second iteration of Little America offered greater room and more electrically driven amenities than the first version, and fresh milk from the three cows, though the young bull refused service and the supply dwindled in the absence of further calves to feed. Slide rogging reliant on personal stashes carried in personal gear continued through May and June, and the thirstiest personnel spent every spare moment sounding the snows with the brass rods, hoping for a chink of metal on glass to give them a ray of rye-laced hope little knowing that even finding the cache of bottles would lead to empty disappointment. Jim Duncan radioed from Dunedin to call for management to manage regarding the looting of the Jakob Rupert. He applied for and received help from the New Zealand Customs Service, who came and sealed the ship, but the looters broke the seals and carried on looting. Duncan threatened to resign if someone from the leadership team didn't lead. Poulter convened a meeting with June, Neville, Haynes and Murphy, the upshot being they called for the resignation of Captain Verliger, so I'm guessing Captain Verliger was either looting or turning a blind eye to looting or too drunk to notice looting. Three times a week Bird called in an all's well from advanced base and Murphy and Dyer made weekly broadcasts to the outside world recounting the Antarctic news for syndicated propagation in the newspapers and sometimes for direct broadcasts to listening audiences. Dr Morgan put together a musical ensemble named The Knights of the Grey Underwear, performing for the base personnel and for live broadcasts. Selections from a library of 150 films donated by Paramount Pictures screened twice a week and later thrice a week, and then double features thrice a week in the mess. The Cook 
reposing on a cot behind the screen, and more often than not drunk. Once interacted with the characters projected his way, when a proffered magnum of champagne was apparently taken right out of his grasping hands. His wrathful cry, Hey, give me that bottle, scut! He gave it to me! Gave the viewing audience a start. Miller ran his electric sewing machines, turning up tents, clothing, sledge tanks, tarpaulins and warming shrouds for the various machines expected to operate in the cold. Pelter established his darkroom in Blackburn's former private lean-to, and Ronnie and Peterson inherited Blubberheim as their workshop by the expedient of getting their kit in there first. They kept it heated above ambient with cinders from the galley stove and spent the winter repairing trail gear in its secluded and faintly warm snugness. Peterson received and transcribed news from radio broadcasts in New York there, the resulting flimsies being passed around the base for anyone interested in edification regarding goings-on in the outside world. The carpenters, Cox and Tingloff, shared their workshop and accommodations with the cows, two Manx cats and an outcast from Dogtown, the shared animal warmth coming at the cost of the odour, though the cows didn't seem to mind too much. Innes Taylor and Noville occupied the Castle of Spain, a prefab they designed and fabricated during the transit aboard the Rupert. The site became a salon, often playing host to large numbers of Confederates cramming in to partake of the coffee brewing on the stovetop or the small niceties Noville worked up at a scale-based quality even the best mess cook couldn't hope to match. Boyd's machine shop turned out the fixtures and fittings required to consolidate Little America as the most modern winter quarters in Antarctica to date, and the gadgets and replacement parts necessary to prepare the half-tracks and the aircraft for their springtime tasks. Lathe, milling machine, drill press, welding rig... <coughs> lathe, milling machine, drill press, welding rig, forge, table saw and bandsaw gave it greater fabrication potential than many machine shops back home. Dr Pataka led archaeological forays into the still iced up abandoned areas of Little America's past, turning up a treasure load of crockery, carbone having clutched the mess down to 18 plates and 16 soup bowls, and two cases of 28% proof, Dr Baxter's lung preserver and a still, both adding new paths around the prohibition mandated by Bird and held to by Poulter. I think he's talking to you. In spite of increased contact with the outside world, little that happened beyond Little America's confines excited much interest. The biggest shake-up that winter arose when news arrived that Bill McCormick's brother, mentor and father figure, Joe, died in an aviation accident. After Vonderwall, Ronnie and Schlossbach all nearly died while confidently setting course for short topside treks during blizzards, Haynes and his meteorological assistant, Griminger, became the only people to leave Little America 2's cosy tunnel network in bad weather, the short hike to the meteorological screen continuing even in the worst weather, one man groping their way into the darkness while the other paid out an umbilical tether by which the man at the screen might find his way home. The camera operators carried explicit Hollywood orders to come home with footage of explorers operating in fur clothing, but with furs mostly used for aviation at this point in Antarctic exploration, they had their work cut out for them trying to bribe their colleagues into wearing the bulky, heavy gear for the sake of the historical documents they were trying to fabricate. While the salt horse, corned beef, pig knuckles and mutton supplies held, Little America ran low on beef and chicken by midwinter. Austerity measures put in place on these comestibles came to naught when a breakout from Dogtown, immediately below the meat cache, saw the chicken stash depleted completely. As with the previous occupation, Little America 2's tunnels were open to allow circulation of fresh air after lights out each night, making for some cold nights, but, very importantly, ensuring against carbon mon-fucking oxide poisoning. A few hands stayed up past lights out, braving the creeping cold as outside air infused the base with its chill and its oxygen. Bailey worked late, banging out the daily radio schedule on the Morse key. 
A rotating roster took the night watch, walking the boundaries mostly as a guard against fires springing up in the tinder-dry, fuel-rich environment. The morning wake-up call fell their way, with jaunty greetings with a report of the breakfast fare, doggerels and vigorous shaking of stovepipes rousing the sleepers, depending on who stood watch. Dustin went to the trouble of dragging a Citroen's horn attached to a storage battery from shack to shack and didn't earn any popularity for the effort. Meanwhile, in New Zealand, the skeleton crew aboard the Rupert continued making free with expedition supplies, hauling off and selling barrels of gasoline. Night watchman employed by Bird's representative in New Zealand, Jim Duncan, proved ineffectual and Duncan called on Poulter to issue orders fit to bring the thieving to an end. Not a natural leader, and left with little idea of what he could and could not do on the expedition's behalf, Poulter didn't find a path through this long-distance conundrum while the expedition's titular leader gazed raptly at his naval officer's naval, a hundred nautical miles away. All through the winter, June used his substantial personal alcohol supply to curry favour among those little Americans he felt he could turn against Poulter. June, who I already noted as a snivelling brown noser for his jockeying for any role in the big ticket flights of the previous bird expedition, really pulled out all stops at buttressing his power and white anting the target of his ire, Thomas Poulter. He started scuttlebutt that the supply caches held less tractor fuel than they actually did. He stated the aviation department would not support any scientific endeavours at Bird's instruction and that Bird held no interest in science other than as a means to his exploratory ends, which I think is true, but I can't comprehend what June hoped to gain by making this a gambit in his campaign. Sure, if you need to alienate yourself from scientists, take that line. Most worryingly, in my eyes, June openly stated that he was going to get Poulter if he had to wreck the expedition to do it. That right there is the exhibition of a small mind at work on a small goal for small reasons with big potential repercussions. Bird was correct not to put June in charge in his absence and the sensible path to that seems to lie in not alienating Burnt Balkan to the point he decided never to work with Bird again. So you can see how Bird's hand was forced by the force of him being Richard, Evil and Bird wound up by some dark clockwork that forced him to make bad decisions at every opportunity and to only win through by force of personality and exceptionally good luck and the efforts of good men working hard to the benefit of a dullard who didn't deserve their consideration. On hearing Scuttlebutt about someone finding the tunnel alcohol cache with a sounding rod and intending retrieval at the first opportunity, Poulter and two Confederates spent the night digging the booze out of its hiding place and stowed it in Poulter's quarters, a dangerous gambit in the sense sufficiently desperate alcoholics might break in and steal it, but a definitive line drawn in the sand. Breaking into the quarters of Bird's officially designated second-in-command would constitute an affront to Bird. The repercussions wouldn't match those meted out for such an offence in any military body, but it would resonate through the whole expedition and dent Bird's reputation, and I suspect everyone realised that was the one thing you did not do if you wanted to only ever deal with the nice version... <coughs> And I suspect everyone realised that was the one thing you did not do if you wanted to only ever deal with the nice version of Admiral Richard Byrd. Preparations for scientific forays began long before the spring sledging weather arrived. Three geological parties planned excursions and set to packing equipment and vittles and readying their trail equipment. Blackburn's Queen Moor Party planned to surpass Lawrence Gould's furthest extent to the east to make a geological cross-section of the Queen Maud's, and to search for and return with a curated collection of fossils and to survey the range and determine its trend. A seismic party under Morgan and Bramhall intended making soundings using explosives to generate the ping in order to map the ice depth across the barrier, then up the Queen Maud's and onto the plateau. The common initial track of these two parties offered scope for mutual support while on the barrier. The Marie Birdland party, led by Paul Seipel, would see three nine-dog teams head northeast to exceed Prestrud's furthest extension in that direction and to make the first footfalls and geological examination in the region first sighted by, and I made air quotes, and named by, Bird, 
during the second flight of the first bird Antarctic expedition. Besides geological, fossil and bacteriological samples, this foray would provide astronomically derived positions on prominent landmarks by which to ground reference past and future aerial photographic surveys. All three excursions were also tasked with meteorological and magnetic observations throughout their time on the trail. I'm in the Beagle Channel approaching Ushuaia and some last minute online housekeeping warranted recording in my cabin for a change. Quote, if you personally attack someone verbally in this group and I see it, you will be banned. No questions. Unquote. So reads the pinned post on Tim Baker's Facebook group, I've been to Antarctica. I'm not much of a joiner. I've been burnt by too many organisations to want to sign into anything I don't have to, but the content at Tim's page seemed compelling and I contributed in kind when I could, my material being generally well received and my concerns about joining being assuaged by Tim's pinned post. When I received ad hominem from Phil Oakley, who not only blamed my disagreeing with him on mental illness, but also saw fit to recommend medication he is not qualified to prescribe and would lose his medical license if he had one and used it to prescribe said medicine publicly, I drew Tim's attention to the attack. Tim effectively told me to grow up and stop being a crybaby, contradicting both the letter and the spirit of the pinned proclamation and seeing me depart his group in dudgeon. I've never published in the taxonomic literature, but my training under the taxonomists Dr. Robin Wilson and Dr. Gary Poor sees me take care in applying labels. So it's accurate taxonomy and not a personal attack when I call Phil an asshole and Tim a hypocrite. I can back those categorizations with compelling evidence, as a good taxonomist should be able to do. Eat a bag of dicks, the pair of you. And a bonus bag of dicks for Rudy Bourgeois de Vries, who in one week praised my reasoning and rhetoric for supporting the concept that people who visit Antarctica as tourists can hold valid perspectives and opinions on that continent, and who in the following week also effectively told me to stop being a crybaby. Phil, Tim and Rudy are free to react to my proffered metaphorical bags of dicks as they see fit, because the only person who has a valid say in how a person reacts to what others say and do to them is that affected person. Gatekeeping other people's emotions is the MO of religious leaders, sociopaths and abusers, and some people occupy the intercept of all three sets. People in any of the three sets can similarly eat bags of dicks and satchels of rectums, all day, every day, especially George Pell and Master P.E. For the record, Phil Oakley, I am mentally ill and I am on medication to help treat my mental illness. Your attempt to use mental illness against me where your reasoning failed you makes you an asshole. Someone being angry doesn't automatically make them wrong and is independent of whether or not they experience mental illness. Anger is an unpleasant emotion, but it can be a valid emotional response to circumstances and it can wind up a person's clockwork and see them get shit done in ways that calm and dispassionate contemplation rarely achieve. Slavery ended, women got the vote, gay people got married and Liz got reparations because people were angry. People trying to win an argument by highlighting and deriding the emotional state of their interlocutor have turned to personal attack because their actual reasoning isn't offering them traction. Calling someone crazy for disagreeing with you kicks downhill and sustains the historical marginalisation of the mentally ill. Go fuck yourself, Phil Oakley. If you can't win your arguments without turning to personal attack, you can't win your arguments. Bonus, bonus bag of dicks to Tim Baker for being smug about his hypocrisy and for telling me to be more nice. Fucking snide piece of shit. Nice is an adjective a packet of biscuits might strive toward, but people can be perfectly nice while oppressing an entire empire's worth of subjects. Nice isn't worth much in my eyes. I aim to be good, which isn't always nice, but which never sees me kicking downhill. So fuck you once more. On a more positive note, big love to Marla, Manda and Marta, who are sharing the Southern Ocean with me this austral summer and whose good company and complimentary nomenclature bring me much emotional succour 
and alliterative joy, respectively. Take care and appreciate your coffee. I need another bag of dicks, too.